The next four months here at Covenant are going to be some busy months in the history of our church. Uh, we're going to be able to experience, at least since I've been here, uh, the first ordination of more elders at our church. Looking forward to that. And uh, we will have three men that will be ordained. Uh, the dates of those uh, ordinations are not uh, absolutely nailed down yet, but I'm sure within the next four months they will happen. There's going to be a number of things that are going to happen before that. Uh, there's going to be some personal interviews with these men. There's also going to be an open, available question time for you as a congregation for these men. And then there will be a public ordination of these men in a service that we will probably have a dinner that day uh, with a tent in the back at least to accommodate the crowd. Uh, Mark Corral is going to be part of that group that will be ordained along with Sandy Allen and Chris Olds. And uh, I'm looking forward to that day. What a wonderful day it will be, but it will be a crowded day. Uh, not like we have any problems with that right now, but we're thankful to God that we will have that. So we'll give you some updates on that as we get closer to it and let you know the details of it. And uh, we're praising God for this great, great uh, event. And you need to give God thanks for the work that these men have done already. It's a lot of work. Uh, academically and uh, just time-wise with their family and their jobs to be able to do what's needed to be trained and to be put into these positions as elders. And also in the midst of all of that going on, we're going to have some ordination of some more men as deacons. And uh, that's going to be another Sunday dedicated to that. And then uh, we have some marriages this year coming up. So uh, we have one in May and we don't have a date set for the second one, but it will be sometime this year, I'm sure. And so there's going to be a lot happening here at our church. So I would definitely appreciate your prayers because uh, there's a lot that kind of lands on my shoulders as a result of that. And I'm praying the Lord will help me through it. I told uh, uh, our, our guys last uh, Saturday, in fact, uh, at our men's breakfast, we were talking about having something going on here. And I said, well, as long as it doesn't happen in March and April, whenever the biting of the fish is doing good, I said, you know, we cancel everything during that time. You know? Uh, that's not the case. I'm so thankful that we have that. So just please pray for that. And I know you will uh, pray for the men, pray for our church, pray for all involved, pray for the Rock Hill, Ch the Rock Hill Church plant, uh, Grace Covenant up there. God's blessing that church. They had 80 this past Sunday, and it continues to grow. God's bringing people there to that Reformed Baptist Church in Rock Hill, and they're coming from all over, you know, Charlotte area and parts like that. So we're thanking God for what's happening there. Well, also now, as we turn our attention to the Word of God, I want you to open your Bibles to the book of James, the book of James, and we're looking together again at the topic of taming the terrible tongue, James chapter 3, verse 1 through 12. We'll finish that today. Let me again read the text for our hearing in James chapter 3, and I'll read verse 1 through 12. The Word of God says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in a word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouth, and they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look, us, look also at the ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest the little fire kindles, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, 
and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessings and cursings. Brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. James has very little to say about the tongue that is positive in this text. In fact, if you look through it, the only thing that he says about it that's positive is that with that tongue you can bless God the Father. And as I was looking back over this and rereading it a number of times this past week, I thought there might be one more thing that we could point out that would be positive here in this text about the tongue. And it's that it's little, that it's small. How wonderful is that? Imagine if it was big, what it could do, what the tongue could accomplish. It reminded me of a story that I read of a pastor who had a lady in his church who was a malicious gossip. She often stirred up things in her church and created a great deal of heartache and strife and division in his ministry. But one Sunday after the service and the message had been preached, she came to the pastor convicted with what the word of God said and told the pastor that she was convicted about her tongue and that she wanted to come and place her tongue on the altar. And she, she noticed that the pastor seemed a little bit in disbelief. So she asked, do you believe me? The pastor said, yes, I believe you, yet I'm a little concerned whether or not our altar is big enough. <laughs> James reminds us that even though this member is so small, yet it has tremendous destructive power. Some of us have seen it firsthand, how the tongue has power to destroy, whether it would be in a church or your job or your extended family or even in your immediate family. You've seen it. I've seen husband and wives divorce over words. I've seen parent and child relationships destroyed because of words. I've seen children provoked to anger because of the words of their father or their mother. When I was a boy and a young teen, I, I grew up in Florida and I got my first real dose of what it means for a father to provoke his child to wrath or to anger. My best friend at that time was Ray. He and I grew up together, and we did what most young boys would do in Florida. We would play together, ride bikes together. We would hunt together. We would fish together. We would eat shrimp and crab on the side of the creek together. We would build tree huts together. We had a great, great time. One of the things we did was spend nights together. We would go over to his house or my house, most often his house, and spend the night together. And usually when you had two young boys together doing that, it always ended up in trouble. But nevertheless, one of the things that really stood out to me during that time was how abusive the father was toward his son, more specifically even the stepmother. Nothing he could do was right. 
There was constant yelling against him. They sliced down to his very soul with the words that they gave to him. It was truly, even at that young age, horrifying to me. I didn't grow up in that. And to see that firsthand was astonishing. I know how it made me feel. And I can't even imagine how it made Ray feel. I lost contact with him after I left high school. I ended up being called into ministry and I met Angela and then marriage. Then we moved up here to South Carolina. So we didn't talk for a very long time. When I was in Florida a couple of years ago, I decided I was going to try to look him up and see where he was and what was going on with him. So I did an internet search to try to find him and I found him. It was a picture of a prison picture. And he died in prison. In 2017, I often wondered what would have happened if that man, that young boy, would have had encouraging words, loving words, kind words. They literally dismantled him. He ended up in a life of crime, and he died in prison. I've seen entire churches divided and ministries decimated by gossip, slander, and characterizations of words. I've seen ministries and even the lives of believers destroyed by those words. Words that actually never were spoken but were spread as if they were. But that's history, right? That never happens anymore, does it? That's not something we ought to be concerned about. Well, not quite. Unless all of us have dismantled our tongues from our mouth. We all have the temptation to use it for Satan. It can be lit on hell, lit on fire from hell itself, whether you're a believer or not. It resides and grows out of a very evil heart and a fallen nature. It has the potential for death and destruction, and even so today. But even more so today, we have another problem. Today there's a new kind of sinning with the tongue. It's a new tongue. It's called the digital tongue. In fact, it looks a little different. It's very powerful. Instead of being wet and covered with bumps and sliding around in a mouthful of teeth and lips, this digital tongue is usually black, overlaid with glass, is an amazing technological advance. Whenever you touch it, it lights up, even at nighttime when you don't want it to. It's amazing, isn't it? You can talk to someone in the next room with it, or you can talk to someone on the other side of the world. With it, we are able to take pictures. We're able to actually even make movies with it. It holds billions of bits of information and has access to all the information in the world, right in your palm of your hand. It also can send out what is called text. Do you guys know what those are? Amazing short little communications that remind you of a stop-off you need to do on the way home to the grocery store that you hope you never saw. Or also, it can text a friend and give words of encouragement or get notified that someone is in the hospital. Along with this ability, this new digital tongue can also email and post things on social media and talk to people that you've never talked to or ever met before. Along with this ability, this new digital tongue can also have a very dark side. 
a very dark side, a very evil side, a malicious side, a side of gossip and slander. One author said this, online harassment has increased ever since the invention of the smartphone. One research group found out that one in three teens are harassed digitally by their phones. Even some states have made laws to deal with this online harassment. Harsh words and hurt emotions and damaged reputations have been part of this whole slandering in the digital world. One author who wrote a book, 12 Ways Your Phone is Changing You, said these words, In an age when anyone with a smartphone can publish dirt on anyone else, we must know that spreading antagonistic messages online with the intent of provoking hostility without any desire of resolution is what the world calls trolling, but what the New Testament calls slander. The sad reality is, is that some Christians have been guilty of trolling and failing to recognize its destructive effects. He went on to explain how easy it is to engage in this particular sin. Each of us, he says, have an inner troll, an inner slanderer, some part of us that would love to text some dirt on a friend or publish some dirt online and anonymously consume the dirt, slander, gossip, half-truths, what the world calls alternative facts, or lying, critical speech and insult, sarcasm, ridicule, could all be labeled trolling. The Bible calls it corrupt communication. Corrupt communication that should not come out of our mouths and should not ever leave our digital tongues at all. Believers are expected and committed by the Word of God to be very gracious in their words, clean in their speech, In fact, if you want to stand out in this world, all you have to do is be willing not to say anything about somebody else. You'll stand out. You'll be very bright if you're willing to just hold back any speech about someone else or spread any rumors of someone else or say something malicious or slanderous about someone else. You will stand out in this world. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but only what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace or unmerited favor to its hearers. Ephesians 5.3 and 4 says, But fornication and all uncleanness and covetousness, let it not even be named among you, as is fitting for the saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather we should be those that are giving of thanks. Colossians 3.8 says, But now you yourselves are to be put off, you, you yourselves are to put off all these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man and his deeds. Colossians 4.6 says, Let your speech always be with grace. Seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer one another. The Bible's full about our obligations to our own tongues. And as we looked at the text last week, we considered a couple of points that I'll just quickly review. The first was found in verse 1, and that is the pressing prudence regarding our tongue. And it really is a stern warning against those who would desire to be teachers, those that particularly would desire to be teachers in the church. In verse 1 it says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Those who are teachers will face a stricter judgment. 
Because you use your words to teach, your tongue is a means of instructing the brethren. And then we saw also the second point, the potential perfection of the tongue, is stated in verse 2. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. So he tells us that this tongue problem is indeed a pervasive problem because it affects all of us. And not one of us in here is perfect because if you were, that meant you had full, complete control over your tongue. And that, by the way, as we'll see later on, is not a permission to use your tongue in a wrong way. Just to say, well, nobody's perfect, therefore I won't worry about it. That's not at all what James is trying to say. He's talking about the power of the tongue, the pervasive nature of the fallenness of the tongue. And how difficult it is to tame, as we'll see later on, the tongue. But then the third point was the pervasive power of the tongue, as illustrated here in verse 3 and 4 and 5. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Likewise, also, the ships, although they are large and are driven by fierce or stern winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a very little member and boasts great things. The tongue may be small, may not be seen, but it is very, very powerful. So as we move a little further now today in our text and we look at the rest of what James has to say, the first thing I want to point out to you is the destructive inferno of the tongue. Look at verse 5, the last part there of 5, the second part of verse 5. See how a great forest, a little fire kindles. Then he says... And the tongue is a fire. It's a world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members so much so that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. Those are strong words. Some of the strongest in all of the Bible regarding any member of our body that causes us to sin. In fact, of all the things I've read in Scripture, there's nothing that comes close to identifying the horrific evil nature of the tongue. And James continues to contrast the small and the great, as he did with the bit with the horse and the rudder with the ship. Here he also talks about how we have this small ember of fire that can set ablaze an entire forest. He says in verse 5, See how great a forest a little fire kindles. Fires, as we all know, are very devastating, left uncontrolled. In fact, on October 8, 1871, about 8.30 in the evening, a lantern was knocked over in Mrs. O'Leary's barn by a cow that started the Great Chicago Fire. That fire, before it was contained, burned 17,500 buildings, destroyed 300 lives, and injured many, many others, and also made 125,000 people homeless. An uncontrollable fire started by a small accident. In 1903, a pan of rice boiled over into the fire, spreading the coals across the room. The blaze eventually consumed a square mile in a Korean city. Just recently in our history, in July of 2018, the largest fire in California's history known as the Ranch Fire, occurred. It burned over 410,000 acres and also consumed 280 structures 
killed one firefighter and injured three others. After the investigation to try to determine where the fire started and how it started, they determined that it was caused by a spark from a hammer hitting a metal stake. Small spark consumed a forest. See how great it says in verse 5, a forest, a little fire kindles. The word see how, behold in some text, is the idea of getting your attention. The Greek word idon in the imperative middle voice would have the idea of behold or look at this or call your attention to this. Pay attention to what I'm about to say. He tells us that this little fire that kindles this great forest is the amazing reality here that you could take such a small, small thing and destroy such a large thing. And that's the contrast. In fact, in the original language, the word halikos is the word translated great or small. It's the same word for both of those things. And it's used to intensify the immensity of something or the minuteness of something. It can be translated great or huge or small and minute. Either way, depending upon the context, and it's used both ways in this text. And the point that James is driving home is, is that you can have a very small word spoken by a tongue that can literally consume a group of people. Or a church. Or a family. One author said that he probably has in mind the Palestinian origin of the book because in Palestine it's not really full of large forests with great trees, but there's a lot of dry areas there with uncultivated brush, and during the dry season it literally becomes a tinderbox. One small spark can start the fire ablaze and it would explode over the hillsides of the Palestinian areas. And that's most likely what he has in mind. In fact, the word for forest here doesn't actually just mean forest. It can mean a heap of wood, a pile of wood, or anything that's combustible. And so that's what he means by it, doesn't he? One small fire, one small light, one small spark, one small word can destroy so many. A fire under control is a great blessing, isn't it? In fact, if you have a fire and it's a very cold winter night and you have a fireplace or a means of having a fire like that, it's a blessing. You can use fire, as many of us do, to uh, cook your food until finally the administration takes your gas stove away. (laughs) But also, a fire can be something that can not only warm a house, that same fire can burn that same house down. It also can destroy the ones living in the house. It can bring great devastation and death and darkness. Robert Murray McShane was one who said this, that he resolved to make sure that if he was talking to any fellow Christian and that fellow Christian mentioned someone else in his company, that he would never say anything else but what is good about them. He said he would refrain from any other speech. He said this, better that surely that to be careless with the fire of my mouth to destroy a brother for whom Christ died. This is the reasoning of James. Verse 6 says, as he goes on to amplify this, he says, the tongue is a fire. It is a fire. 
The tongue is not only powerful, it is also perverse. It is small, but it's very influential. And worse, as we'll see, it can be influenced and driven by Satan himself and is infectious. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 27 says, The ungodly man digs up evil, and it is on his lips like a burning fire. Proverbs 26, 20 through 22 says, With no wood the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, strife quiets down. Like charcoal to hot embers and wood to fire, so is the contentious man to kindle strife. The words of a whisperer are like the dainty morsels, and they go down into the innermost parts of the stomach. So James here is passionate about his understanding of the destructive nature of the tongue. So he gives us a string of pictures here in this text, five different pictures about the tongue. And the first one is, as you noted in verse 6, a fire. The tongue is a fire. Fire is all-consuming. It is destructive and very painful. One of the most amazing things about fire, though, is that it is uniquely able to produce itself or reproduce itself or to grow in an unlimited fashion. It can start off as a very small flame, but it can become a very large fire. Unlike water, if you were to pour a glass of water here on the stage here, it wouldn't grow into a flood. But if you were to light a small uh, flame here on this pulpit, before long, uncontrolled, it would be a massive fire. It grows and it spreads and it feeds itself as long as there is fuel. As long as there's fuel. And you see, I believe that's one of the things that James is driving home here, is that because the tongue is a fire, it really doesn't do well unless there's fuel. And you and I happen to be the fuel. We're the ones in our fallen nature that can either stop the fire or we can inflame the fire. We can prohibit the fire from going any further or we can actually add gas to the fire and make it even worse as it spreads. The second thing he says about this tongue is it's a world of iniquity. The word iniquity here is a word for unrighteousness or unrighteous, that which is unjust or unjust. It brings injury to the others. In fact, it's used to refer to fraud or deceit or guile. Same idea. But the idea behind this is that this tongue is a world, a cosmos. That's the word for world there. A cosmos of unrighteousness. It's interesting the way James uses this term because the word cosmos, we're often familiar with that. It's used in 1 Peter chapter 3 as that which adorns a woman. In fact, uh, sometimes we talk about the word cosmos in the sense of how a woman arranges her face, puts things in order as far as makeup is concerned. I'm just telling you what the Bible says, okay? But then there's also the word cosmos in the sense of the world system and also the universe and the planets and the stars. And we all know that apart from God's control of this organized universe, we would all careen into space uncontrollably but God is the one who organizes the cosmos and it is an organized system and that's what's behind the word here that this tongue is a world it's not just chaos it's not just unorganized in many ways it's very systematic it's very organized it's a cosmos it lines up if you will the words do in a perfect order to bring the greatest and most destruction to someone. And that's 
what he has in mind with the world of iniquity. It's not just a small, isolated event. It's literally a system, an organized system of unrighteousness and evil. The tongue, as one author says, is an organized system of words lined up in such a fashion as to be adorned with the worst forms of evil. Not unorganized, but rather specifically set in motion like the planets of the cosmos to reap the best benefit for the evil of the heart. A systematic sequence of words that can inflict the most damage and harm. A few years ago, I read an article by a Morgan Blake out of the Atlanta Journal. He said these words, I am more deadly than the screaming shell from a howitzer. I win without killing. I tear down homes. I break hearts. I wreck lives. I travel on the wings of the wind. No innocence is strong enough to intimidate me. No purity pure enough to daunt me. I have no regard for truth, no respect for justice, no mercy for those who are defenseless. My victims are as numerous as the sands of the sea and often as innocent. I never forget and seldom forgive. My name is Gossip. And that's the kind of power this world of iniquity has in our mouth, the tongue. Then the third characterization he has of the tongue in the same verse is that it's set among our members so much so that it defiles the whole body. Now the word defile here is a present participle means it is the defiler. In other words, the tongue is the defiler. It defiles us. It's characterized as a defiler. And the word translated here, spilao, for defile is the word that means to stain or to spoil. It can have the idea of a smoke-soiled garment. So if you're around fire, and many of you, I'm sure, have experienced this, you have something on and you're around a fire and you get the smoke on your garment, it's not very easy to get that out of there. For those of you, I know when I was growing up, I I grew up in a home that smoked. My parents both smoked. And whenever we would sit down and watch our Gilligan's Island, I'm not kidding you, there was a literal cloud of smoke that hovered about three and a half feet through the whole living room. And then whenever we would travel to Alabama, our, our yearly vacation to see all the family, we had a station wagon with air conditioning. My dad would roll up all the windows and both mom and dad would smoke. And we were just, we were smoking because we were smoking the other end of the cigarette. It's amazing that we don't all have lung cancer. The point was, is that we all know what that is. We've, we've been around that and we understand what it is to be soiled with smoke. And this is the idea that this fire that spreads from our tongue doesn't just stay isolated. It literally stains everything. It affects all around you. You can't just avoid that. And it is also important to understand that the word translated here for the defiler, if you were to translate it with the definite article, the defiler of the whole body, is considered a progressive moral impact. In other words, it, it, it increasingly gets worse. It doesn't just stop with one incident. It just gets worse and worse and worse and continually morally defiles not just you know, your soul, but the body is representative of all of you, all that you are, your body, your soul, your spirit, you know, whether you're a trichotomist or a dichotomist is not the point. The point is, is that the whole person, all that you are, is affected and defiled by the words that come out of your mouth. You remember what Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, verse 20? What comes out of a man, that's what defiles him. What comes out of a man is what defiles him. Not what goes in, but what comes out of him. 
He goes on and says in verse 21, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murderers, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lawlessness, or lewdness rather, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile, stain the man. And although he's talking about the heart there, the heart's just the next step back behind the tongue. You see, the heart feeds the tongue and causes the tongue to pronounce the words. And that's what is the source of all the evil. In fact, in this text, you can find that um, the tongue is what gives voice to the evil thoughts. The tongue is what gives voice to wickedness, to blasphemy, to pride, to all kinds of foolishness. It paves the way for the illicit relationship of adultery or fornication. The tongue can lie to cover its own sin. It can misrepresent the truth to keep a position at a job. It can boast of things that aren't even facts at all. It can talk about a person or talk a person into committing crimes. It can say it's okay to kill, that it's permissible to sin. The tongue is a limitless source and a vocal platform for every kind of evil imaginable in the Bible. So the number four characteristic he gives to us here, it sets on fire the course of nature. Sets on fire the course. This is an amazing way he says this. I don't know what your translation is. I know the Legacy Standard Bible says sets on fire the course of our existence. The actual word here for course and the word for existence is, the word course is wheel or a circular thing. And then the word existence is the word we get birth from. It's really the circle of life is what he's talking about here. Or if you could think of a course where you would run a course, you go around and around the course. And the point is, is that the tongue literally sets on fire, not one portion of your life, not one simple area of your life, but the whole circle of life. It affects everything that you come in contact with in your life. All of life, the entire circle of life from birth to death is affected by the tongue. I think you see that what James is driving home here is the importance of controlling it, right? If you don't control this beast, if you don't control this evil world of iniquity within your mouth, you're going to find that all of your life, the continual daily affairs of life, are destroyed by your tongue. One author said, to a large extent, we are known by the way we talk. Over the long haul, what we say gives others a pretty good idea of who, what, who and what we are, or what we really are. Number five, it gets worse, by the way, in his description. He says here in the text, and it is set on fire of hell. I told you early on last week that there's nothing else in the Bible that is described this way. No other part of the sinful flesh is described this way. The tongue is literally set on fire by hell itself. Horrific. Ignited is the idea. The word hell is the Greek word Gehenna. You've heard of that. Jesus used this term a number of times. In fact, outside of the book of James, the only other time you find the word Gehenna is used in the Gospels where Jesus talks about hell. Well, what was he talking about when he used the word Gehenna? Well, Gehenna was a very familiar place to the Jewish people because they, they called it the Valley of Hinnom. 
And right outside of Jerusalem, in a very, very deep uh, canyon area, was a place where garbage was placed, dead bodies were placed of even criminals, and corpses of animals were placed there. And it was always burning. And there were always worms and maggots in the area of Hinnom. And it became the place known as a place where the fire continually burns and the worm never dies. And Jesus picked up on that to use it as a vivid illustration of hell itself, the eternal nature of the fire of hell. By the way, it also was the location originally used by the Canaanites whenever they offered their children to the pagan god Moloch. And it was so defiled and such a heinous practice that it went on there that the godly king Josiah of Judah said that that place would never be fit for anything other than garbage and unclean things, wholly unfit for anything else. It's a horrible place. But the Bible says that this actual tongue that we have is set on fire from this horrific place of hell itself. Now, Gehenna is also the place that eventually Satan is going to end up and all his demons According to Matthew chapter 25 verse 41 and according to the book of Revelation in chapter 20, Satan and the beast and the false prophet are all going to end up in this place called Gehenna or the lake of fire where the fire never is quenched and the worm does not die. The point is this, is that not necessarily that Satan himself is coming up here and causing you to do what you do, but if you want to align with hell itself, if you want to be like the place where Satan is going to be, then talk like an unbeliever, talk like an ungodly person, slander and gossip and misuse your tongue in an ungodly, sinful way. That's what he's telling us. It's set on fire from hell. This is Satan's tool. Satan's tool. It fulfills the very purposes of hell itself. I mean, the devil, according to the Bible, has come to kill and destroy. He was a murderer from the beginning, and all his desire is is to destroy you, your family, your church, your job, your life. And what is so tragic, he can use the smallest of members to do so, the shortest of sentences. Just a word can be used. Psalm 55, 21 says, His speech was smoother than butter, but his heart was war. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn like swords. And also in Psalm 59, verse 7, Behold, they belch forth from their mouth. Swords come out of their lips. The origination of the tongue's evil is hell itself. So we move a little further now from the destructive inferno of the tongue to the deadly depiction of the tongue. In verse 7, he says, For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. There's probably one exception to that. It's a cat I have. And it's demonic. In fact... um, Just to give you a little history on that, back when my daughter was a lot younger, she wanted a calico cat. So we did the normal thing that most people do. You go online and look for a calico cat. We found one that happened to be in a meth lab. So we decided to rescue two of them. One of them died. And uh, that cat we thought that was going to turn out to be a very sweet cat turned out to be a demon. (laughs) And in fact... She named it Grace. I think it should be named Wrath. (laughs) This cat, I'm not kidding you, 
will look at you and you would think it has love in its eyes. And you go to pet this cat, it will turn on you. And before it's all over with, you'll be just clawed to death. I must admit, there was a time, and I'm an animal lover, please put that in context, I threw that cat across the room. It grabbed hold of my arm and started lighting into it with its claws and its teeth. And I, I tell you the truth, the Lord has been working on me with that cat. So every kind of beast and bird except, I put that in parenthesis, this one cat and reptile and creature of the sea has been tamed and has been tamed by mankind. And you know the point of this. It's not domestically tamed like a pet. It's talking about the ability of man to control the biggest of animals, the biggest of beasts, and the worst of reptiles. I mean, if you've ever been to a circus, you've seen them handle the large animals and the tigers and the lions and the tigers and the bears and the elephants. And even if you've been to SeaWorld, you've seen them get in the same pool with a killer Well, I mean, my goodness, all of that is because God has given by his own decree, man, the ability to tame even the wildest of animals and the worst of animals. And that's his point. He uses a perfect tense verb and a present tense verb, meaning this is an ongoing thing, but something that has been given and that they are still in uh, a subject to man. God has allowed man to curb the wildness of the animal and to subdue the animal, to bring it under control for his own purposes. And by the way, the only time this other word is used here for tame is in Mark chapter 5, verse 4, and it's used of the man who was a demoniac who was absolutely out of control. And yet he couldn't be tamed is the point there because of the demons that were in him. But many wild creatures we all know have been tamed and controlled by man. But what is James' point? His point is... You can control the most ferocious animal on the planet and make him subject to you, but you can't control the smallest of members in your head, the tongue. He has no ability to do so. Look at it in verse 8. But no man can tame the tongue. That's absolute. That's absolute, with the exception of Christ, of course. He was the only one who tamed his tongue. The Bible says that no man can tame the tongue. The word here, can, means have the ability. Dunatos is the word. It's the ability to to have the actual ability to control it. The word no one or no man is udes, which means no exceptions whatsoever. And I think it's interesting here that he uses the word here, no man, the word anthropos that we have for mankind. He doesn't mean no man in the sense of male. He includes both male and female. All of mankind does not have the ability and cannot tame, subdue the tongue. Why? He says in verse 8, it's an unruly evil. Or as some translations translate that, restless evil. What's behind the term is the caged animal pacing back and forth. And you can't get in there and get control of him. He's agitated. You can't get close to him. He's unruly. He's He's not rested. He, um, he's an unruly evil, as the text says here. And one author said this regarding this. He said, even in believers, the tongue can easily slip out of a sanctified cage, right? As it were, to do great harm. 
Its work can be so subtle that it sometimes escapes notice until the damage is done. That's why even David himself in the Psalms was very much aware of this. And he prayed this, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. If you think that you have got control of this thing called the tongue, you, my friend, are deceived. This thing is an unruly, restless, sinful member of our bodies, and we need to always be diligent to make sure that we're keeping track of it. In James 1.8, he says, he uses the same word here, restless, as unstable. And it is, it's unstable. It's fickle, it's inconsistent. It's unreliable. The moment you think you've got it and you've nailed it down, it's loose again, right? Slips so often. And that's such a sad thing. He also tells us in this text that it's full of deadly poison. It's full of deadly poison. Interesting word. It's made up of two words, pharaoh, not in the sense of the leader of Egypt, but the word pharaoh means to bring, and then the word thanatos, which is death. It's compounded together. It means basically this, a deadly death bringing. What the tongue does is it brings death. It brings death. It doesn't just poison temporarily. It poisons to the point of killing. That's what's behind. The word translated here for poison actually does have the idea of sending forth or bringing forth, but it also pictures that venom coming out of the snake's mouth and out of his his actual fangs. Psalm 140 verse 3 says, They sharpen their tongues like a serpent. The poison of asp is under their lips. Remember, that's quoted in Romans chapter 3 by the Apostle Paul, referring to the depravity of man. Ephesians, or rather Ecclesiastes chapter 10 and verse 11 says, A serpent may bite when he is not charmed, and a babbler is no different. So we see the destructive inferno of the tongue given to us by James. We see the deadly depiction of the tongue But then one last one, and very clear and very obvious, the defining nature of the tongue. Look at verse 9 through 12. This is very straightforward, very easy to understand, but it concludes everything that James is saying here. Verse 9 says, with it, that is the tongue, we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessings and cursings, my brethren. These things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. The tongue, as I told you last week, is a tattletale, isn't it? It tattletales on us. It shows the heart of man. It betrays the deep affections of our own soul. It is the fruit of our character. It is the manifestation of whether or not you are regenerate or not. And that's one of the things that James is driving home here. He's talking to his brethren, which he's already addressed on a number of occasions, not only to include the regenerate of the membership of the churches he would write to, but also the potential of you being deceived by not being a doer of the word and thinking you're real when you're not. If your mouth only spews hate and evil and slander and gossip, there's a question as to whether or not you're truly saved. Because if you have been transformed and changed from the inside and your heart has been made new by the power of the Holy Spirit, there will be fruit in your speech. 
One of the things I find interesting sometimes is that some who claim to be believers, you never hear the word Jesus off of their lips. You never hear things like that. And you wonder, you know, if they really loved Jesus as much as they say they do, why don't they talk about him? Why don't they talk about Christ? Why don't they talk about his word? Why don't they talk about his church? Why don't they talk about the commandments of God? Why don't they talk about it? I mean, if you've been truly converted and saved, how is it that you cannot say something about it? So the tongue is that which really reveals the soul, doesn't it? If you want to know a man or a woman, listen to them. If you want to know what they're about, listen to them. What they have to say. The tongue is not just wild and raging like an animal, but it's also clever and plotting and subtle and deceptive. It's hypocritical, eagerly willing to deceive in order to achieve its own advantage. Look at verse 9, he says, With it we bless our God and Father, and that we here could refer to the Jews as a whole or the Jews in the church that he's addressing. He, like the book of Hebrews would often use the word we, referring to the Hebrews or the Jewish people. Here in this text, he's saying, we as Jews, we as believers, we bless our God and Father. And this was something that the Jews were accustomed to, right? I mean, often throughout the day, they would say the words, blessed be thou, O God. They would say that repeatedly throughout the day. They understood what it was to bless our God and to bless Yahweh. They wouldn't use the word Yahweh, but they would bless God. But then in verse 9, he says, but then we curse men. We bless God and we curse men. And these men, referring to men in general, these that are not even saved, we curse. And yet they're made in the similitude of God. The word similitude means likeness. They're made in the likeness of God in the sense that they have will, emotion. They're given, they have an eternal spirit. And yet we curse the very creation of God with our mouth and at the same time bless the God that created them. Doesn't make sense. The word curse here, by the way, doesn't mean cuss, even though that's probably what we often think of. Uh, there's a lot of that going on today, but that's not primarily what he has in mind with the word curse. The word curse here has the idea of actually wishing harm on someone, uh, wishing ruin on someone, cursing them. Like it's akin to the word, it's actually a synonym of the word anathema, where you're pronouncing a curse of damnation on someone, ruin death and he says so you bless god and praise him and his name for all that he is and all that he's done and at the same time you wish ruin and harm and death on the creation that he made you see the hypocrisy of it right the pharisees were full of this they were full of the hypocrisy of blessing god and then cursing man and then even peter as a believer who had confessed Jesus in Matthew 16, 16 and said that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, just a few chapters later is denying him and cursing. In that context, there's probably some cussing going on in that text. And of course, you know what happened, right? The difference between the Pharisee, no bitterness, rather no weeping, no repentance. But Peter, after being confronted by our Lord, what does he do? He weeps uncontrollably. He's confronted by his own sin and his own hypocrisy because he used his words to blaspheme God. To blaspheme God. Unlike the Pharisees that were whitewashed tombs. On one occasion, even Paul the Apostle lost the use of his tongue. You remember this in Acts chapter 23, verse 3? He didn't even know the man was the high priest, but he called him a whitewashed wall. And uh, 
after he found out he was the priest, he, he, he regretted that. He repented of that. He shouldn't have done that. He shouldn't have spoke so evil about the Pharisee, even though he may have been a whitewashed wall. He knew he should have given respect to the high priest. We've all stumbled like this, haven't we? We've all stumbled with the tongue. I'm actually amazed that you came today knowing the text we were going to cover. I have to be in it all week and get beat from pillar to post, then come and preach it to you and be accountable for what I said. James chapter 3, verse 1. We've all stumbled in sin with our tongue, but there's, that's no excuse. That's James's point. That's not an excuse to just not deal with the tongue. Just because we fail doesn't mean we should fail. Just because we haven't practiced control doesn't mean we shouldn't. We should all be careful with the words we use. We've all been guilty of singing praise on Sunday morning only to slander a brother on Monday. We've prayed prayers on the Lord's day only to talk about others' sins instead of going to them personally like Matthew 18 says. We've talked about the great forgiveness and grace of God in our lives while at the same time going over again and again and again with our words the sins of others. We've talked about the love of God on Sunday only to be hateful in our words throughout the week to our spouse or our children or our co-workers or our friends. We've had the blessing of God in our lives and praised him for reconciliation and how he's brought us together, yet we're unwilling in our words to reconcile with our husband or our wife or our friend. We thank God for making him or making us part of the body of Christ on Sunday, praising him for that and saving our souls. Yet on Monday, we complain about the local church that God led us to. Lest you think this passage has no application to you, don't be deceived. It does. Verse 10 says, Out of the same mouth proceed blessings and cursings. My brethren, these things ought not to be. Strong words, in fact. The word translated here, ought not, is a word that should, could be translated not become or not appropriate. It's not appropriate for a believer to act like this or to speak like this. You're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, purchased by the power of God and the redemption of Christ and we should be those that exemplify the kind of grace in our speech unmerited favor to all of those around us who are hostile to us speaking words of grace and edifying and building up it doesn't mean that we don't have times when we have to actually speak the truth and the truth is hard it doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that there aren't times whenever we have to correct and rebuke and exhort it doesn't mean that but what it does mean, according to what the Apostle Paul told Timothy is, is that whenever we do this, we do it with long-suffering and grace. Why? We're all sinners. And we all sin with the tongue. And we all need to be aware of the fact that we could easily fall. We'd be gracious and loving and long-suffering, yet truthful. Verse 11 says, does the spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? You know the answer to that. No. It's a rhetorical question. Anticipating the answer, no. Verse 12, can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives? What would you say? No, of course not. Or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water in and fresh. If you've got that, you need to have your water checked got some problems going on there something's not right a hateful heart cannot produce loving words and works 
An unrighteous heart cannot produce righteous words and works. Just like Jesus said, a good tree cannot bear good fruit, or bad, bad fruit rather. Jesus explained, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Therefore, you can know them by their fruits, and I would say this, you can know them by their words. You can know them by their words. If you claim to be a fig tree, but you bear olives, something's not right. Right? What you say you are is not what you are. You are an olive tree claiming to be a fig tree. If you claim to be a grapevine and yet you bear figs, something's just not right. What you say you are is not what you are. You are a fig tree that that claims to be grapevine. And if you claim to be a freshwater spring but you only spew forth salt water, something's wrong. You are a saltwater spring claiming to be fresh. James is telling us in very vivid terminology is that your speech can betray who you really are. You say you're a believer. You say you're a follower of Christ. How's your mouth? How's your mouth? How's your conversation? What's it like? I read an article just yesterday, in fact, again, of... This trend, and I don't understand it. I I have yet to understand this, why some popular preachers believe they need to curse in the pulpit. What is that about? Why do you think you need to do that? You think you're going to reach somebody by cursing, cussing, bringing down the work of God into the gutter? Is that going to be something that you can do? Listen, your tongue reflects who you are. Your tongue reflects who you are. And many of us have come from backgrounds that have had Difficult days with that. I mean, some of us grew up in a context where every other word was a four-letter word. And you came to Christ, or Christ came to you, since we're a Reformed church. Christ came to you and saved you. And, and, then, <laughs> and then God began to transform you, right? He began to work on your vocabulary. He began to work on your words. And you began to notice that those things that were coming out of your mouth weren't quite right, And the reason why is because now the spring has changed. It's no longer salt and bitter. It's fresh. And it's coming up and it's beginning to say, hey, what you got coming out of this mouth is not right. It's not right. And sometimes it's a process, isn't it? God cleans our mouth up over time. He helps us with those things. But the Bible gives us, as I read earlier, many commands, many admonitions, many exhortations of how we are to make sure we control our mouth And it doesn't mean that we can just sit back and say, let go and let God, that it's going to happen. You need to discipline your tongue. Tie it down. Tie it down. Sometimes I wish I had the ability to control mine like some of my family does. You know, I I have a tendency to talk too much. I remember back whenever Luke was very small, and Luke's going to hate me for this, but it'll be okay. We'll work our way through it. <laughs> when he was small, and he and I went out on a little fishing trip together, and he, he, he was in the Legos back then. And it was about a 45, 50-minute drive back to the house, and he talked the entire time about Legos. In fact, I don't think I ever got a word in. It was Legos. We rolled all the way up into the house, stopped, Shut the truck off. I said, Luke, do you have any more to say about this? He said, yes. I was like, oh, my goodness. I used to say that sometime whenever we finally get to heaven, that when Luke, Luke's name's called, that everybody will be told to sit down. 
There's going to be a lot. We have to wait a little while. There's a lot of words here to go through. Well, it's not the same anymore. As you grow up, you become a little bit more careful with your words. Nothing wrong with a kid talking about Legos. I'm not saying that. But I am saying we do, we do sometimes have a tendency to run off at the mouth, don't we? <laughs> we all do. And we need to make a careful control of that tongue and practice what we know is inside of our heart. The tongue can betray who you really are. I close with this. On a frigid night in December of 1722, a 19-year-old teenager dipped his quill into the ink jar and began to write. Some believe perhaps maybe he cupped his hands around the warm lantern first to warm his fingers so that he would be more able to write in the chilly air. He began to write what is known today as the Resolutions. His name was Jonathan Edwards. In those resolutions, he wrote a number of them about the tongue. Now think about this. This is a 19-year-old young man. He writes these words, resolved, never to say anything at all against anybody, except when it is perfectly agreeable to the highest degree of Christian honor and of love to mankind, Agreeable to the lowest humility and the sense of my own faults and failings and agreeable to the golden rule. Resolved. Never to speak anything but pure and simple principles of truth. Resolved. Never to speak evil of any except I have some particular good reason to do it. Then he says this, let there be something of benevolence in all of my speech, all of my words. One author said this, how easy it is, how easy it is to fail with the tongue and destroy the effect of every grace that had taken years to build into our lives. You introduce poison like this and you endanger everything. You endanger everything. As we close, you know, I think that I told you this early on when we started the book of James that many of us were going to find ourselves convicted as we work our way through it. And I'll be the first to admit I'm one of those guys. I need to repent of times I've spoken out of turn, spoken in anger, spoken hatefully, not loving, not gracious, not merciful, not long-suffering, all of those words. I think it would be the case in many of us here today, as James so eloquently put it for us today. So we're going to close in prayer, and I'm just going to offer a time for you to also pray. Just a moment of silence, then I'll pray, and then we'll have Sandy come and lead us in our closing hymn. Let's take a moment and pray together. Father, we give you thanks for your grace in our lives. We give you thanks that you are merciful to us. We give you thanks, Lord God, that you have forgiven us of the words that have come out of our life that were filled with hate, 
slander, gossip, malicious, times when we had hate in our speech to create pain and agony in others. Lord, I pray today that you would transform our mouths like you transform our hearts. Enable us, Lord God, to practice discipline over our tongue, to control the words that come, to speak that which is edifying and gracious to the hearers, to be long-suffering to those who are not where we are or where we may be. I pray, God, that you would purge from us every evil way, eliminate from us, Lord God, those things that are displeasing to you, enable us, Lord, to follow you not only in, in our deeds but also our words. Help us follow, to follow you, Lord, in such a way that when people hear us, they say that man must know God, must know Christ. And we pray, Lord God, that you would do that great work of sanctification in our lives today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.